In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, and we are in chapter 22 of St. Matthew's Gospel. We're near the end now, and uh, you'll remember that chapter 21 begins with Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem, the triumphal entry where he cleanses the temple, and he meets the chief priests and the elders face to face, and they uh, question him. They ask him, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus' response to them is told in chapter 21 with two parables. The parable today is uh, building on those two, and this is what Jesus does, right? He takes a small parable and he builds. So you're Remember the parable of the lost coins builds to be the parable of the lost son, right? The prodigal son. So here we have that simple parable of the two sons, one who does the will of his father, and then we have the parable of the tenants, some of whom are obedient. And now we're building on that theme of obedience to the father. This is the central theme that Jesus is saying or laying at the feet of the chief uh, priests and elders, obedience to God. Uh, this is uh, that, that final uh, parable that summarizes that importance of obedience, of doing what our Father in Heaven tells us to do. And he does it with this wedding parable. The fathers of the church say that this uh, wedding parable is, again, it's building on these themes of uh, the seasons or the years of the church, these um, eras of, uh, of faith in God. The first era is uh, the era of Moses. So this is the first time that uh, the king's servants, the king being God the Father, he sends his servants, first uh, Moses, and uh, Moses uh, tells the people, come and live lives of righteousness, right? Live by the commandments of God, and the people reject uh, that invitation. So you'll see in verse 3, he sends his servants, and they would not come. So this is saying that uh, Moses gives them the law, and they reject the law. Then we have the prophets. That's the second group. He sent other servants to those who were invited. And again, the prophets go forth and they say, be obedient to the Father, right? Follow the law of God. Be obedient to Him. And this is one of the themes that Jesus uh, uses over and over again. He talks about uh, what it is that they do to the prophets. And this is partly history, but it's partly future history. He's also warning, this is what they're going to do to me. Because anybody that tells anyone, be obedient to the Father, is going to get himself killed, right? And so he's saying that the servants go forth and they invite those and they tell them to uh, celebrate uh, the sacrifices of God, right? The fat calves at the wedding feast. And then we know that this is the response of so many. Some uh, just kind of ignore it. They just wander off into other kind of lives, uh, right? They go to their farm or their place of business. In other words, I've got other things to do with my life than to be focused on the Lord. Uh, but some treat them shamefully and kill them. And so this is the response of the people of God to the prophets. When we read this in, in parable form, uh, no one is surprised that a king whose servants are killed and murdered is going to go and exact uh, vengeance upon that city, right? The idea that the king then kills the members of the city and destroys the city is just the fact of life. This is just how kings act, right? Nobody's surprised by this. Somehow uh, we get it into our heads that there's not going to be consequences for our actions. And Jesus' parables tell us clearly there are consequences. 
consequences. He's going to destroy that city. And then we get the third time that uh, we get a servant sent out. And this time the king says, invite everybody. Bring everyone into the banqueting hall so that I can celebrate this uh, wonderful feast, the wedding of my son, who of course is Christ being wed to his church, right? Christ becoming incarnate. This is uh, him wedding his divinity to our humanity. God becomes man so that man might become one with God. And so uh, this is the feast that's being celebrated. This, uh, then the third time, are the apostles, right, going to the Gentile church. And we read that they invite the good and the bad. That's us, right? That's us sitting here. We're the good and we're the bad, right? And then we read that the Father will come and he will examine. And of course the fathers talk about the two basic examinations, right? We all have to pass two exams into the uh, kingdom of heaven. The first is a personal judgment, right? We're all going to die. When we die, the Lord is going to meet us and he's going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? This is the parable of the talents, right? This is what I gave you. I gave you this many days. I gave you this many people. I gave you this much stuff. How did you use it? And either we used it according to his love and righteousness, or we didn't. And that's the personal judgment. The final judgment is when Christ comes again, and we all have finally to answer that question. What have you done with what I've given you? And so this is what the king is asking this one who comes into the banqueting feast. And we see that he's not wearing a baptismal robe. Now this is about baptism, right? This is about uh, us being washed clean and we're given robes, these white robes in baptism, right? This is the symbol of the ancient church. Uh, In the ancient church, people were baptized without any clothes on at all, right? And they were clothed in these white robes after being anointed with oil. And so he's not just saying, be baptized. He's saying, are we living according to our... Our baptismal covenants we promised that we would obey that we would obey the will of the father in baptism and so the baptismal garment is have we been obedient to the father if we've been obedient we've put on that white robe that celebration garment if we haven't been obedient we haven't put on the robe and then finally the one who has not been obedient is cast out into utter darkness, right? Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And sometimes people read that and they say, that's so mean. No, it's the result of denying life. If we're presented with life and we say, no thank you, and we get death, what grounds do we have for complaint? God has said, here's life, my son, and we've said, no thank you, we've chosen darkness. God is light. He is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we reject Him, we're in the darkness. We can't be surprised that we're now without light and that we're without life. He is righteousness. He doesn't have righteousness. He is righteousness. If we reject Him, we reject righteousness. If we reject Him, we reject justice. So if we're cold in death without justice or righteousness, we can't be surprised. This is what we've chosen. And God's response is going to be the consequence or the result of our response to Him. And Isaiah says that our response to this equity, this righteousness of God, this justice of God, is to rejoice. 
Did you read this passage from Isaiah like I did chapter 25 and say, what? He says, I will exalt you and I will praise you. For what? Because you have done wonderful things. Okay, what wonderful things have you done? You've made the city a heap. Yay! He's left the city a heap. This is what, finally, the king does. He leaves Jerusalem a heap. Whether in the Babylonian exile or when the temple is finally destroyed in 70 AD and the Jews are cast out of the promised land after the Bar Kokhbar revolt in the 2nd century, there is no one there at the temple to worship God. He's left it a heap. And Isaiah is talking about this third coming. He's not talking about what's happening soon. He's talking about the Messiah. And he's saying that our response to God leaving the city a heap is to rejoice. Isn't that incredible? You've left the city a heap, he says. But God's response to the city being a heap is to offer not another brick-and-mortar place in the world, He offers Himself. He offers His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes our city. Jesus becomes our wall. Jesus becomes our foundation. He becomes our protection. And in that city, which is the kingdom of God, He offers us two things. We read that He offers us rich food, rich food, and well-aged wine. Eusebius of Caesarea, the great church historian, says this is clearly the oil of anointing that we receive at baptism, and this is Holy Communion, the well-aged wine. These are the two things that enter us into the kingdom of God. We're anointed in baptism, and we receive the wine of Holy Communion. This is the Lord offering us to come into Himself as that new temple, as that new place of worship, where He will always be worshipped and glorified. So then the question is, how do we do that? How do we enter into the worship of God? How do we enter into that righteousness? How do we say yes to His love? How do we say yes to His justice? And St. Paul is always is very practical. He tells us some very practical things that we're supposed to do. The first thing that St. Paul says tells us that we're supposed to do is to rejoice. Like Isaiah said, rejoice when we feel like it. Right? Isn't that what it says? Rejoice when you feel like it? No? Always. Rejoice always. Not just when we feel like it. Not just when we say, well, do I feel like rejoicing today? No. We rejoice always for all things. When we're in hardship, when we're in suffering, when we're in danger, we're supposed to rejoice. Our response is to rejoice to God. He says it again. Again I say, rejoice. He says, be reasonable. Can you imagine? We're so good at being unreasonable, aren't we? And being proud of it. I get a little unreasonable when people don't treat me the way I like to be treated. I get a little unreasonable when things don't go my way. I get a little unreasonable when, when people are rude and inconsiderate. That's not what St. Paul's saying. He's saying always rejoice and always be what? Reasonable. What does that mean? That means measured with self-discipline. 
right? We're always supposed to be in control of our thoughts and feelings. We're supposed to be reasonable. There's no time when we're given permission to be out of control with our thoughts and feelings. We're always supposed to be on point with prayer and with thanksgiving. Always in prayer and thanksgiving to God. We're supposed to be focused. Finally, he tells us, don't be anxious. That's an easy one, isn't it? Don't be anxious. He's not saying there's nothing to be anxious about. Because that's not true. There's lots of stuff to worry about. The world gives us a whole list. Hey, let's worry about politics. Hey, let's worry about global instability. Let's worry about the environment. Let's worry about money. Let's worry about social injustice. Let's worry about XYZ, right? The world will give us a whole list and they'll say, worry, worry, worry about all that stuff. Right? The Lord says, focus on what's true. That means that we get to choose what we think about. We get to choose what we think about. We have freedom to decide what we are going to focus on. We have freedom to decide what it is that we're going to focus our minds on. And St. Paul says, focus on whatever, on whatever is true. Think about what's excellent. Think about what's lovely. That's our focus. What is excellent? What is lovely? What is deserving of praise? Be focused upon these things. And he says, practice them. Practice them. Practice praising. Practice focusing on what's excellent. Practice focusing on what's beautiful. We're supposed to be practicing every day to focus on these good things of God. And when we do that, it doesn't matter whether there's anything in our pockets or not. It doesn't matter what's going on with the rest of the world or not. We're focused upon the Lord and we are with Him always and forevermore. Isn't it strange that the Lord's so hung up on marriage? That he uses a wedding banquet? The world says, don't be so hung up on marriage. It's whatever you want it to be. It's whoever you want it to be with. It's whatever you want it to be about. And yet the Lord's teaching on marriage is clear from Genesis to Revelation, from Adam and Eve to the groom and the lamb, at the revelation at the end of the age. Because marriage is not about us, it's about God and our relationship to Him. And if we don't know what marriage is, we don't know who God is. And we don't know what our relationship with Him is supposed to be. What's the first thing we know about marriage? It starts with the groom loving the bride. The groom has to love the bride. What kind of love is that? Is that puppy love? Is that, is that sweet love? That's sacrificial love. This is a groom who's willing to die for his bride, right? That's the first thing, is we have a groom who's willing to die for us. And so we know that we have to die for one another. We have a groom who is faithful. There is faithfulness in marriage. We don't get into marriage and then decide if we like it or want to stay in it. We're supposed to always be in it for eternity. It's a marriage that's between the bride and the lamb, and our marriages here on earth are supposed to reflect that in fidelity. Right? We're supposed to have fidelity to one another. What else do we know about this love? We know that this love is, is about uh, obedience and it's about uh, uh, submission. Right? It's about submitting to the will of God. 
And it's about giving back that love that we've received. So the Lord teaches us about marriage first and foremost because he's teaching us about our relationship to him. And then when we are married, husband to wife, we are practicing, practicing that love that God has for us. May our love for the groom be so bold and so beautiful and so faithful. May our love for him be so eternal that we are always in his kingdom, that we are always in his grace, and that we always receive his beauty and his truth, this day and forevermore.